Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating Hispanic and Latine Heritage Month with three of our favorite Scholastic authors. First, Carmen Agrediti will talk about her extraordinary new picture book, which is available in both English and Spanish editions. Carmen is a master storyteller who was born in Havana and grew up in Decatur, Georgia. Her acclaimed storybooks include The Rooster Who Would Not Be Quiet and Martina the Beautiful Cockroach, a Cuban folktale. Next, author and actress Sonia Manzano, known to generations of kids as the beloved Maria on Sesame Street, will talk about Coming Up Cuban, her lyrical new novel for middle graders. Sonia is also the author of Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx, and The Revolution of Evelyn Serrano, which won the Pura Belpre Award in 2013. Last but not least, Claribel A. Ortega will talk about Witchlings, her highly anticipated novel for middle graders. The imaginative story is about a group of aspiring witches whose magic is found not so much in the spells they cast as in the bonds of friendship they forge. Claribel is also the author of Ghost Squad, a New York Times bestseller. First, here is author Carmen Agrediti. Hi, Carmen. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back, Suzanne. You know, I just think the world of you. Ah, and ditto. Yeah. <laughs> now, please tell our listeners about The Children's Moon, your latest picture book. It is an absolute stunner. Let me say that before you begin. Oh, my goodness. Well, a few years ago, pre-plague, I was with uh, my granddaughter, Ruby, and the rest of the family at the beach. We had gone there to find solace. My father, whom we all adored, passed away at 93 peacefully in his sleep. But it was really a blow to a family to which he was, you know, sort of like the trunk of a very large tree. We all went to the beach. And, and then one, one afternoon, Ruby and I were walking back along one of the little streets. And she, she does one of those things that kids do. And they whop you on the, on the arm. Nana! I said, what? She goes, look. And we both, she was already looking, but, you know, we both now are turning towards the ocean. And on the horizon, it appears, of course, because of, of the time of day, it, there appears to be sort of floating on the ocean, this enormous moon. And it was a bright cerulean blue day. It was a beautiful day, bright blue. And I said, oh, Ruby, don't you love that? She goes, you know what that is, right? And um, because I'm a grandmother, I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and she said, you do not. And I said, all right, I do not. It's a moon. She said, no, Nana, that's the children's moon. And you know, writers get this kind of niggly feeling when they hear certain phrases or words or a certain story. And you kind of go, ooh, my spidey senses. I said, what? She said, you don't know about this? I said, no. She goes, I know something you don't know. I said, listen, you rotten kid, you better tell me right now what it means. And she's howling and just having the best time. But she told me, as, as, as at the time, a nine-year-old only would, she said, Nana, 
a long time ago. These people called Victorians because of this queen named. I said, I know, I know about Queen Victoria. Okay, okay, okay. Well, anyway, kids had to go to bed really, really early then because parents were super mean. And I said, I can't even imagine. I know. They didn't get to see the moon. Even like in the wintertime. I said, whoa. Right. So when the moon came out during the day, they called it. I went, great balls of fire. The children's moon. She said, bingo. (laughs) And I thought, oh, what a great premise for a story. Now, then later I learned that other people had heard of this. There was a poem. There were references to it because, you know, then you start doing the research. And I thought, but where's the story? I thought, well, is it the children who want to see the moon? Maybe it's the moon who wants to see the children. Oh. And um, a lot of story writing is about turning an idea inside out, kind of like a sock, and considering the other perspective. So that is sort of where the story started, that the sun and the moon had very clear, very defined hours of the day. They had, they had a realm, each their own. And the moon, to me, is more playful. And I've heard a couple of people say, oh, the sun sounds so mean. He really isn't. He sounds a little pompous. But wouldn't you be if you were the sun? <laughs> I mean, right? Yes. Uh, but right. he ends up being really very genial in the end. And he's, he ends up being her ally so they that share. she can see the children. Right. And she's, she's as enchanted as she thought she would be. And so she says, can I, may I come again? And he says, well, the children wouldn't forgive me if I didn't let you. And so that's, that's why when she appears in the sky during the day, we still call her the children's moon. This is why we love you, Carmen. (laughs) You've already got me wrapped around your finger. Oh, no. Could you read an excerpt of The Children's Moon for our lucky listeners? Oh, lucky. I would love to read it. I would be remiss and a real jerk if I didn't mention the beautiful illustrations by Jim LaMarche. Oh, he's so fabulous. He is. He is. (laughs) They're amazing. (laughs) All right, story time. There once was a time when the sun alone ruled the day. The moon graced the night, and little children were put firmly to bed before sunset. But one dawn, as the moon slipped out of the sky, she heard laughter. It was high and sweet, like the daintiest of silver bells. She paused. What is that sound? Hurry, the sun urged her along. The children are waking, and it's my turn to shine. So the moon glided away in a shimmering trail of moon dust. That dusk, when they met again, the moon could scarcely contain herself. Oh, do, do, do tell me about the children, won't you? Surely you've seen them, huffed the sun. (sighs) Only by moonlight, she reminded him. Well, said the sun, they're small and fast. I make a great deal of noise, (laughs) but they do love drawing pictures of me. They never see me, sighed the moon. (sighs) Unless you'd let me come out by day? Certainly not, snapped the sun. You know the rules. The day is mine. The night is yours. A pity, said the moon. (sighs) I've often wondered, you know, how the world would look aglow in your golden rays. Uh Uh-huh. This last comment seemed to please him. He wasn't a bad fellow, you see. Just so very grand and, well, brilliant. 
Thank you so much, Carmen. I have to ask you, what is your number one fan and critic, your granddaughter, think of the book? Oh, 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 Ruby was, Ruby had had opinions. She loved it. And she said, you know, if you thought about it, my name really should be on the cover too, don't you think, Nana? And (laughs) she was completely messing with me. She is the sweetest most kind-hearted, generous little soul, but she likes to poke her Nana. <laughs> she loved it. She loves the book and, and she loved that memory. It was a really dear memory too. And stories come that way. One of the first things you're asked as an author when you're around children, really and adults, is question number one, where do you get your ideas? Uh, with children, question number two, so how old are you? But you know, you can, you can <laughs> take care of that later. I just tell them I was around when the stones were soft and that leaves them sort of pondering that for a bit and they leave me alone. But where do you get ideas? Well, we get ideas like the little, um, little story I just told you. Uh, sometimes it's something that you read or you see, or you might be out and see an interaction between a couple of people or a child and a, and a dog, or um, maybe you're reading an article and you think, well, that's fascinating. I wonder if that's true. And you then go into this deep dive of research and find out, well, so badgers really do have latrines outside of their little sets. Oh, kids would love to hear that. Whatever it is, you know, you begin with an idea and it may be very small. It grows into a book when you hold on to that idea with both hands and refuse, refuse, refuse to let go. Could you tell us about your earliest reading journeys, especially in English? I remember something about a librarian in Georgia. Everybody knows that story by now. Oh, well, reading um, used to be and it's still I can still, you know, feel tired after a while. But I've been reading for so long. At my age, I have spent a lifetime now as a reader. But as a young reader, as an emerging reader, seven, eight years old, I did read in Spanish. Spanish, um, for me, it was, it was more facile. You know, the, uh, a, a letter had the sound that it had. A, E, I, O, U. There's, there it is. There's our vocabulary. There were no diphthongs, um, which sounds like a terrible bathing suit. Uh, there were no silent letters. There are no, I shouldn't say, not, no, it's not past tense. There are no silent letters. And then English, for me, was just, it was just daunting. And I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I would later learn about something called auditory dyslexia. I would be 28 when I was finally diagnosed. And part of my problem learning English was that I wasn't hearing words clearly. Hence, reading them, I couldn't really apply the right sound to them. Does that make sense? So by the time I'm about, um, not quite eight, I am dropped off at the library by my sister who was on her way to ballet class. My mother was at the hair salon and my father was at work. And that's where I met this Southern woman who was of an era. She had this marvelous, this marvelous bouffant. And she had these the kind of glasses that feel like they should go with library, the old cat glasses with the little tiny rhinestones all around. And she saw me walk in and immediately she said, excuse me, little girl. No, no, the one by the door. Come here, please. And she waggles her fingers when I go over because she knew every kid in that in that little town, Decatur. She says, I don't believe I've seen you in this library before. And what do I tell her? Oh, I never been in here on purpose. I was pushed. My sister had made me go in, right? And I said, besides, I don't like no stinking books. 
I could have hit her upside the head with a two by four because if you had seen her expression, like those cartoons where the eyeballs pop out, you know, and they go in again. And she said, what did you say? Of course, what am I going to respond with? I don't remember. I mean, I'm backing up. I'm backing up. I'm backing up. And she says, come back here. Come back here. And she's the one who told me this extraordinary little story. She said, did you know that from the moment you were born, somewhere in this world, there was a book waiting for you? And I said, yeah, right. Not for me. I knew for other kids, but not for me. She just shook her head and said, no, it's true. From the minute you came squalling into this world, causing your mother trouble, and I'm sure you did, on some shelf, in some dusty library, in some corner, there was a book that the author unknowingly wrote for your mind and none other. And if you and that book, child, ever find one another, and she slapped her hands together and went, freight trains, two freight trains, you'll never be the same. I remember looking at her and going, that's kind of scary, lady. She said, well, you know, reading scares some people. But, you know, you didn't strike me as that kind of person. And that's where we started. And Uh, that's how I ended up with Charlotte's Web. Oh, Carmen, that's just so great. (laughs) She was great. Absolutely. Yeah, I've changed her name a little bit. People from our town know who she was. Oh, that's okay. All right. We will protect her identity here. Well, she's Miss Mary Mack. That's what we all called her. How old were you when you came to the U.S. with your family? I was three years old. I was born in 1960 and we came in February of 64 by way of Mexico, of Mexico. We were for a couple of months and it was a very, very difficult time. We had no money. We had we were not able to bring the not even a suitcase. So we came in the clothes we were wearing. We had some distant cousins, and while we were in Mexico, we were waiting for some um, for visas, you know, to come to the U.S. And my father couldn't work there, you know, of course. So we stayed in this little tiny apartment, and we just walked all day. And my parents were very protective of the little money that our cousins, with great, you know, had given us. And I'm sure it was a, a sacrifice for them. So we were eating about one really big meal a day, and then one day, as we're walking along, I don't think I've ever told this story. It's such a dear one because it has a it has a coda. We're going through El Parque de Chapultepec, uh, Chapultepec Park. And there were ladies sitting on the ground making tortillas. If you've been there, to Mexico, you have seen the ladies making the tortillas right there. Uh, this was, m- mind you, this is almost 60 years ago. My sister and I were so emaciated. We had lived through four years of communism. And the hunger was so tremendous. My sister had been born in 52. And she remembered food in different ways. She used to tell me stories about food the way... Other siblings might tell fairy stories. Well, as we're walking, one of the ladies looks over and she says, and it's beautiful, and I, I can't do it correctly, so I don't want to do it. I'm doing it as respectfully as I can because all the accents are different in Central and South America. Mira la nena, la chapapita parecen solo hueso, eh? You look like they look like they're all bone. And she waved us over and she gave both my sister and me tortillas. Oh my God, with queso fresco, with this fresh cheese. Uh, I, I, I just, it was the most, and my mother immediately, my father, you know, there's like, they, they're activated, like, no hay dinero, no hay dinero, there's no money, there's no money. And this woman, this wonderful, I mean, I was so little, and I remember this particular incident, it's one of the few I remember from that entire adventure, misadventure maybe. She waves my mother away with one swipe, as if she's swiping away a bad smell. And she says, déjame, leave me alone. Well, after that, Every afternoon, we would take the same route through the park. <laughs> and my parents,
sometimes would pretend to look around at the scenery while my sister and I walked up and she gave each of us tortillas. Uh, so when I became an author and I started going to schools and I saw the faces of little children that I knew many of whom were from Mexico. I remember my first impression was so affecting because I was able to give back a little, a very little, mind you, but a little. It's a lot. It's a lot. Oh, Carmen, that's just so beautiful. Well, those kids are precious. What are your hopes for those children who are like you, who are (laughs) like the child you were and who are looking to the future? And there are challenges ahead, of course. What, What do you hope for them? Oh, I would tell them what I would have said to my three-year-old self had I been around. Just you wait. Just you wait. It's going to be wonderful. Work hard. Read. If you are literate, if you can read, you can learn anything. Even if you can't go to college. I didn't go to college. I don't wear that as a badge. I wish I could have. I couldn't. I needed to work. And that is the truth of many families. But my parents, they modeled for me curious minds. They were people who were always learning. And I think as long as our children know, if you can keep a curious mind, if you keep learning, you can learn anything. You can learn everything from quantum physics to how to make your own tortillas. So, yeah, that's what I wish for them. Thank you so very much for being here today, Carmen. It's been a joy to talk with you. It's always an honor. Thank you, Suzanne. Here now is author Sonia Manzano. Hi, Sonia. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Oh, welcome again. Please tell us about Coming Up Cuban, your new novel for middle graders. Well, it was a long journey in writing Coming Up Cuban. It's about four children and what happens to them when Fidel Castro took over Cuba with his Cuban revolution in 1959. The children don't know each other. They come from different uh, social and economic classes. And I was interested in illustrating how one event can affect four lives so differently. What inspired the story? Well, it was a really crazy turn of events. I was at a party, at a book party, and uh, there were with a lot of authors and an, uh, a man, an American citizen, a United States citizen said that, shared that when he was a little boy, his parents had a chicken farm in Cuba. And he lived there. And he said, when Castro came over, took over, they had to leave their chicken farm because Castro nationalized everything and he didn't want any American citizens owning businesses. He said, well, we had to leave our chicken farm. We had to leave all our belongings. We had to leave our family dog. And I said, oh, that's so terrible. You were a little boy and left your dog behind. And he said, not so terrible. The dog showed up on a boat in Miami a few months later. Well, I have to tell you, this is true. And uh, all of the authors in the, at the party immediately took out their notebooks and jotted down this very lovely premise. 
including me. And I thought I'd write a nice picture book about finding connections and uh, the dog finding his beloved owner. But then my brilliant editor at Scholastic, Andrea Pinkney, said, you know, you may want to snoop around there and see what else is was going on in that country at that time. And when I did research to round out this picture book, I just was so interested in all the other things that happened that it turned into a novel. You're the first novelist I know, Sonia, who got an idea at a book party. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful story. I enjoyed it so much. And you mentioned that the book features the narratives of four young people. I wondered if there's one of the four narratives, one of the youngsters you identify with the most, and if so, why? I think that I really identified mostly with Huang and Sulema, which are the last two. And they are the children who stayed in Cuba and were affected by the goings-ons because uh, Sulema was hungry for knowledge. And I certainly felt that way as a child myself. I was hungry for books and hungry to read. And that's what she goes through and benefits from the Brigadista program, and when Castro wanted to make literate all of the population of Cuba. And then I loved Juan because Juan is poor, he's Afro-Cubano, and there's something noble about him. I like to think of myself as being noble and (laughs) (laughs) high-minded in that he has to decide whether he has to continue to cultivate a friendship he's uncomfortable with. Because his because in schools at that time, they militarized everything and he has to kind of be in the military and it's not his thing and it's his best friend's thing. So this militarization of schools comes between Huang and his best friend and he has to make a decision as to what he wants to do. And I think that in my mind, he probably came over in 1972 when the Mariel boat people came. That's neat. Now let's back up. Could you talk a little bit about the Brigadista program and how it affects Zulema and her family? The Brigadistas are what the teachers were called who went into the rural countryside to teach guajiros or peasants how to read. And I actually remember, maybe I was 10 or something, when Castro came to the United States And he was at the United Nations and he said he was going to make everybody in Cuba know how to read within a year. And that's what he did. He closed the schools for a year and he gathered up all of these young people. They were called brigadistas and their job was to go out into the countryside and teach people to read. Some people didn't want to learn how to read. Some people thought it was an intrusion on their lives. Women who wanted to read had had fights with their husbands who didn't want them to learn how to read. So within that story, that narrative, I created Sulema and she's desperate to read. But it's not just about that. It's about her relationship with her father. She thinks he's dumb and he's old fashioned and he doesn't want to get with it. And then she realizes that he's just afraid. He's afraid of the world changing. And that had something to do with what's going on now in our country, where there's so many changes you have to adapt to very quickly. Uh, Zulema realizes and becomes closer in the end to her father, because once you understand somebody, you understand them better and you're closer to them. And he loves her more. 
It's such a touching story. And I love that she wanted to read fairy tales too. She didn't just want the propaganda, the nonfiction. <laughs> yes. Well, that came from learn from all the research people and all of the, the experts of the times that I that I chatted with. Many said, look, you have to understand that it wasn't just a pure mission of reading. I, Castro wanted to indoctrinate people into his way of, into his ideology. So that's why I threw that in, that she wanted to read fairy tales and face it and write about it. She reminds me of you, Sonia, <laughs> <laughs> as you say. Could you read an excerpt of the book for us and set the stage for our listeners? I think I'll actually read the very first chapter because it really does set up the book. It's not about the children we were just talking about, Sulema and Huang. It's about Anna, who opens the book, and uh, she had to leave with her mother. Now, Anna's father was a revolutionary, and he was very idealistic, and he was pro-Castro, and he went off to fight this war and for the betterment of Cuba, or so he thought. Uh, but then uh, he, of course, he gets disillusioned right shortly into the book. But at the beginning, this is how we meet them. And I'm hoping to set up the, the kind of revolutionary fervor that was going on in the country. Havana, Cuba, 1959. We are almost there, almost at the gate. Chispa, my dog, afraid of the gunshot sounding sharp in the distance, is whimpering in my arms. My mother is just ahead, so close, so close to home, when the rebel grabs her. She squeals. Fear weakens and drains me, but the blood pumping through my body propels me forward. I run and jump onto the rebel's back. My skirt rides up as my legs hook around his waist. His filthy shirt, belt, pants feel slick and grimy against my thighs. But I hang on tight, squeezing with my knees and punching with my fists. He grunts and twists in surprise as mommy gulps the air like a stupid seal. Chispa, who had been so afraid of the celebratory gunshots, is now brave. And my little dog, even while dropped and lost in the tangles of her leash and our bodies, finds a way to latch onto the man's ankles. Caramba, the man curses. Stop, mommy, please. But the man won't stop. So like Chispa, I bite right into his ear. Ugh! He grunts, twisting, trying to flick us both away. The top rubbery part of his ear is disgustingly salty. Hair from his head that slips into my mouth tastes like pennies. Stop, Alma, I told you to stop, screams my mother, pulling at me. Me? Did I hear right? Was she talking to me? I find her face over his dirty shoulder. The look in his eyes is wild, crazy, and happy. Anna, Anna, she says forcefully, stop. I said, stop. The man's sour breath hits my face. She says it again, stop. The man makes another sound and grabbing his ear maneuvers away from me. Caramba. But this time he chuckles. Chispa's barking joins the sounds of cracks in the sky. My mother, calmer now, whispers hoarsely, stop. I said, stop. It's your father, Anna. It's your father. Oh, yeah. So that's how Anna meets up with her father after not seeing him for a couple of years when he was fighting in the 
in the mountains with Fidel Castro. And it is what happens uh, when he fills her with hopes and dreams that don't pan out and how she feels about him for, did he lie to her? Was he a fool? And that's the kind of things that she has to sort out. They're impossible questions in a way. And it was such a shock to find out this was her father and, and what many young people in history go through. I think that young people now, myself too, I hope that things change for the better. I can't not hope, but I, I do remember as a kid, my mother telling me, oh, these terrible things would happen. Or I felt they were terrible. And she'd say, oh, it's going to be fine. And I would get so angry when it wasn't fine. But now I know she was just giving me hope. It wasn't yeah. just misleading me. She wasn't, she just didn't want to say things are really awful. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of hope, what do you hope your young readers will take away from the story? I hope that they put themselves in uh, the shoes of other people. I think the only way we can really have a better society is if people understand another person's point of view and see how we all feel the same things. We attribute those feelings to different events, but it's the same feelings. I want to talk about a little bit about uh, Miguel, who's the character we haven't touched upon. And he was part of the Pedro Pan program when parents sent Cuban children alone to the United States because they thought that Castro was going to do them ill and indoctrinate them. And they really thought it would be for a short period of time. And a lot of these children were sent to the United States, to Miami. Can you imagine being 12 and you're, some, you're someplace, nobody speaks your language and you're all alone, the fear. But Miguel comes here and he's a kind of a scaredy cat kid. And the, the experience he goes through in the United States actually make him stronger. And they end up staying in the United States and living in in Miami. So I hope that our readers read all these stories and say, oh, I would have done that or I wouldn't have done that or I don't know if I had would have done that. And uh, it inspires them to think. It really does hit a nerve. I can't imagine going through that as a 12 year old. But I do think of the children in Ukraine who we hear about, who they've had phone numbers or other numbers written on their arms and they're sent off away yes, from the violence. Right. And it happened after World War II or during World War II when people sent their children. You saw in the, when uh, the, the troops left Afghanistan, the mothers ta- passing their children up. And the, the results of how those children feel when they grow up. I talked to people. They were some were still angry at their parents. Some were forgave them and said, I wish I'd never have to make that decision. Right. Sending my kid away and hoping for the best. So often the parents are every bit the victim, you know, it's. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it proves you can't win. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's the message we're taking away. (laughs) I'm just kidding. As you note in the back matter of the book, which is very helpful and gives a little bit of a history and a timeline, there are many similarities between the people of Cuba Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, where your family is from. 
What would you like others to know about that heritage? Well, I've I've always been fascinated by the kind of the sisterhood of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic. And these are Spanish-speaking Caribbean islands. And how we're the same and different. Now, my family came to escape grinding poverty in the 40s. And so because they were very poor, and so they had to find a new way of life here. And they were offered jobs in factories because it was booming. The United States was booming and they needed workers. So they were invited to come and they took the opportunity. Now, the people who had means stayed in Puerto Rico. I mean, why would they leave if they're comfortable? Cuba, on the other hand, is sort of the exact opposite. Cubans came here to escape political uh, persecution and they... They had means. They were educated. They went to Spain every year. They went to universities every year. So it's a different experience when they came uh, educated and prepared and sophisticated. And the poor stayed back in Cuba or the ones who couldn't who couldn't leave right away. So it's 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 like two sides of the same coin somehow. And I I just found that fascinating. And of course. The music connection, Cuba, I mean, it's all Cuban music that Puerto Ricans took and made salsa out of in the 70s. They would wait for, I mean, it was all Cuban music inspired. And I was, my family was very musical. And I remember hearing these Cuban songs and just going crazy. And then all of a sudden you'd you'd see a Puerto Rican recording of it, giving it a New York's Five, you know, exciting sound. So there was that con- that our creative connection that I found fascinating. What do you think your mother would make of your story? I mean, she came here, and <laughs> she left poverty. She had daunting challenges raising a family. What would she think? She was with me long enough to see my success on Sesame Street, and I'm very happy that that I was successful on Sesame Street for so many years when she was still with us. But uh, she was always very, very encouraging and and thrilled and uh, happy for all of my accomplishments. But she was pretty strong, too. (laughs) (laughs) She certainly was. Based on your memoir, I know that. What can your young fans look forward to next uh, since you are Sesame Street's beloved Maria? We know there's some television involved. Yes, yes. Well, we have, uh, I've created a uh, animated series for PBS called Alma's Way. It's or it aired in October. We've already been picked up for a second season. We're very excited. Alma is a little girl who lives in the South Bronx, much like me, updated, of course. And a lot of the characters in Alma's Way are based on my own family. And the show is about thinking. I noticed that a lot of kids in school are under so much pressure to pass tests and memorize information at the same exact moment as their peers, that uh, kids who couldn't do that were thinking they weren't smart. And the show sets out to tell them, no, it has nothing to do with being smart. Smart is putting two and two together. And everybody has a brain and everybody can use it. That's the theme of Alma's Way. Oh, that's wonderful. I have to tell you, Sonia, since we last spoke, I saw the movie West Side Story. And I thought of you. That may be one of the first times you saw yourself in a work of art. Yes, yes. I saw myself and I saw the things around me. That was the point. 
all of a sudden the schoolyard fence looked beautiful and the fire escape looked beautiful. Now I'm talking about the first West Side Story still. And I thought, gee, that's why people go see paintings by impressionist painters like rotting flowers. It's a banal thing. Everybody has rotting flowers in their house. But why do we go see this guy's rotting flowers centuries, you know, generations after generations? It's because he's put his heart and soul into presenting it the same way the fire escape was presented with heart and soul. And so all of a sudden it's a beautiful thing. It's a meaningful thing. The sets were pretty remarkable in the second movie. (laughs) I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for joining me today, Sonia. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Here now is author Clarabel A. Ortega. Hi, Clarabel. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Tell us about Witchlings, your new middle grade novel. Sure. Uh, So Witchlings is the story of 12-year-old Seven Salazar, who is an overachieving witch in the town of Ravenskill. And she wants nothing more than to be in House Hyacinth, which is the coolest coven, in her opinion, and where most of her hero witches have been sorted. Unfortunately, on the night of the Black Moon ceremony, her biggest fear comes true and she's sorted as a spare witch, which means she's sort of left over. To make matters worse, she's sorted with her bully, Valley Pepperhorn, and the new girl in town, Thorn LaRue, who nobody really knows and has a terrible secret of her own because their coven circle doesn't close. And they're about to lose their magic altogether. Seven invokes this thing called the impossible task. And they have to find and fell the iconic night beast monster before time is up or they will be turned into a trio of toads. Easy peasy. (laughs) I have to say as a reader, I was stunned when Seven didn't get into her preferred coven (laughs) with her friend Poppy. I was really sad. You've said that you love witches because they're dramatic. What do you mean by that? I just feel like if you slight a witch, she will put a hex on you, right? It's not like, oh, I'm annoyed by you. It's like, no, I have to curse you. It's just always over the top. And because there's magic involved, I think this it just raises the stakes for no matter what conflict you're a part of. And I feel like that's very realistic. I think if people had magic, we would do the same thing. We would use them to use it to like settle petty grudges. <laughs> so I just think that witches are so fun and funny. And some of my favorite witches, I love uh, the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus. And I think that they're so funny and so dramatic and so over the top. I mean, they have a musical number. <laughs> it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. And as like a, a theater kid, it just speaks to my soul. Oh, that's fantastic. What do you hope young readers will take away from Witchlings? Oh, gosh, I really hope that they realize that there's more than one way to succeed and that sometimes the plans that we have in life don't pan out the way that we expected them to. And it's okay to sort of like reevaluate the things that you want or your dreams and to start over and to start something new and to believe in yourself, even if you are somebody who everyone around you is sort of 
sorting as a spare witch or, or, or treating as someone who's left out or left over, that doesn't mean that you can't belong somewhere and that you can't find a group of friends or a family that accepts you. Witchlings at its core is really about found family. And I just want kids who feel left out to realize that they are loved. Could you read an excerpt for us? Maybe start with the opening pages. I absolutely can. Chapter one, anything but a spare. It was the night of the Black Moon ceremony and the very last thing Seven Salazar wanted was to be a spare witch. Now that she was 12, she'd be placed in her coven, but like every ceremony before, tonight three witches would be left over. Spares. Nobody ever wanted to be a spare. Seven had done everything she could think of, studied for her CAT exams, attended every witching social event she could fit on her calendar, She'd even joined the toad racing team and gotten stuck with the slowest, crankiest toad of the lot. At least his name, Edgar Allan Toad, sort of made up for it, but only sort of. It wasn't like Seven had to do all those things either. Everyone in her year got to participate in the Black Moon ceremony, of course. But it was a long-standing belief among witchlings that the harder you studied and worked, the more likely you were to get into one of the cool covens. Seven tied her combat boots and slipped on her oversized purple hoodie before securing her pointy hat on her curly hair with some pins. They'd give her a giant black ceremonial robe when she got to the town square, but it was thin and the night was cold. She didn't want to freeze her buns off. She shot a quick text to her best friend Poppy, telling her how excited she was for tonight. Duh, Poppy wrote back. And me too. Can't wait to be coven sisters. Seven smiled at the message as she walked into the kitchen where her mother Fox was putting the celebration cake in the fridge to cool. Sev, you've got your amulet, right? Fox wiped her slender fingers on her apron and let down her curly red hair. It's only the whole point of tonight, Mom, Seven said, holding up the amulet that hung around her neck. Later that night, it would light up with the same color as the other witches in her coven. Please, please let it turn purple. The color of House Hyacinth. The coven Seven and Poppy had dreamed of being placed into for, oh, just about all their lives. Remember, things will work out okay, no matter what happens tonight, Fox said. Easy for you to say, grumbled Seven, looking at the bright aquamarine pendant that hung from the necklace Fox always wore. The blue stone signified House of Stars, one of the most popular covens. Seven would have a much better chance of achieving her biggest dream, becoming a witching world-famous journalist if she was in one of the powerful covens, like her mom. It was pretty much the opposite of being a spare, because being a spare meant your destiny and magic didn't match up with anyone else's. Being a spare meant you didn't belong, and Seven wanted desperately to belong. Ah, oh, thank you so much, Clarabelle. You're welcome. Early in your career, you wrote for a small town newspaper. I'm wondering how the reporting skills you honed there inform your novel writing. So being a journalist, being a reporter is all about interfacing with your community, talking to people. You really can't be shy when you're, when you're a reporter. And one of the things that I learned early on in my journalism career was the more information you had about the subject you were writing about, 
the easier the article would be to flesh out. And I approach my books the same way in that I do a lot of upfront research about the setting and developing the characters and the world building in general. So that when I sit down to start writing, I already have a really good idea of what it feels like to live in this world. I want it always, especially with Ravenskill and the 12 Towns, which is a secondary world within our world, to feel lived in, to feel like it's been there for a really long time. Like readers are just jumping into a a place that has a rich history. And I think the research really that I, research skills that I learned really um, in my time as as a journalist and as a reporter have helped. And also I don't think I realized how much I would be talking to people about my book when I set out to become an author. So definitely the skills in terms of talking to people and being in front of people in public speaking and being able to pitch something on the spot have have come in handy. Could you tell us about growing up in a large Dominican family? I would imagine you got a lot of material there as yeah, well. Yeah, it was chaotic. <laughs> there was sort of never a dull moment. And there's a lot of characters within my family, which has helped me to be able to write in a way that it feels fun to me. My stories are very much character driven. And I think that growing up in a family with so many diverse people with such varying personalities and desires and goals and interests really have helped me to write about characters that reflect those same things. What were some of your favorite books growing up? I loved Goosebumps. Those were my favorite go-to books. I remember the first time I went away to summer camp, my mom sent me with three books and I finished them almost immediately. And when they sent me a care package about a week or two later, most of it was more Goosebumps books because I was like, I really need more of these. Um, So definitely (laughs) Goosebumps. I loved the Babysitter's Club as well. I also read Sweet Valley High when I was probably too young to read it, but I had two older sisters. So I would like sneak their books whenever I could. I loved The House on Mango Street. I loved Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings really started off my love for the fantasy genre. And yeah, those were just like a few of my favorites, but I have so many. When was the first time you saw yourself in the pages of a book? Not till I was probably much older in a way that really connected with me. I I would say that when I read The House on Mango Street, it was the first time that I sort of felt like, oh, wow, this is a Latine family, you know, they lived in Chicago, not New York City, but still they weren't Dominican, Mexican-American, but still it it felt sort of like I could relate to them. But when I was older and I read books like Shadow Shaper by Daniel Jose Older, for example, which has a Caribbean-American protagonist and relies heavily on sort of like Caribbean culture, I felt really sort of connected to that. I would say that there's not that many Dominican American books that I've read where I felt really connected to it because I mostly read in the kidlet genre since it's my job and we still have a long way to go there. There are a lot of authors making strides, but it's more recent than I feel like happy about. <laughs> there was a longer history there. <laughs> of course, you're you're blazing a trail. Now, Witchlings is set in the town of Ravenskill. And I wonder what Dominican influences you can cite 
In terms of the, any of the Dominican influences, there's plenty in Seven's family. Like when she's talking about pineapple cake to celebrate and that, uh, her, her coven placement, that's a pineapple, you know, cake is a, is a huge staple of Dominican Republic. But also more so than just Dominican culture, just Latin culture in general, because all of the spells in witchlings are for the most part in Spanish. And that is just the normal thing in their world. I felt like Spanish was so much more, would be so much more accessible for a magic world set in, in North America, right? It makes more sense in Latin to me. <laughs> and I thought it would be really cool for kids who speak English as a second language or just speak Spanish in general or whose parents speak Spanish and they don't to sort of see that and be like, oh my gosh, I understand that. I wanted it to be sort of like a little inside joke for us and a little gift to kids who were like me because English is my second language. So I would have loved something like this as a kid. I'm sure your readers are loving it and lapping it up now. But that said, it's just been such a joy to talk with you. I wonder if you could tell us what can your readers look forward to next? Well, the second book in the Witchling series, The Golden Frog Games, is set to come out next May. I'm very, very excited about that. It uh, takes place during a magical competition where the contestants are being turned into stone and the witchlings need to figure out what's going on before Thorn is next. So I'm very, very excited about that. We'll look forward to that. Thank you so much for being here today, Clarabelle. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Before we go, here is master storyteller Carmen Agrediti reading from the Spanish edition of her new picture book, The Children's Moon. Hubo un tiempo en que el sol reinaba durante el día. La luna adornaba la noche y los niños pequeños se acostaban rigorosamente antes del atardecer. Pobrecitos. Pero un amanecer, cuando la luna se marchaba del cielo, escuchó una risa. Era aguda y dulce, como la más delicada campanilla de plata. ¿Qué es ese sonido? Preguntó la luna y se detuvo. Apúrate, dijo el sol ansioso. Los niños están despertando y me toca a mí brillar. Así que la luna desapareció en medio de un brillante estela de polvo lunar. My great thanks again to all of the authors who joined me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the books we discussed and for more Hispanic and Latine themed titles, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.